Welcome to the Low Carb Leader Podcast, a podcast focused on optimizing health and performance through a low carb lifestyle. Every episode will bring you a step closer to living an amazing low carb life. Come join us for this exciting journey. And here is your low carb leader and host, Dan Perryman. Hello and welcome to the Low Carb Leader Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Perryman, and you have joined me for episode 54. Today's guest is Dr. Norman Robillard, PhD. Dr. Norm is founder of Digestive Health Institute, and he is a gut health expert, author, and microbiologist. He is the creator of the Fast Track Diet Fermentation Potential System and a former research scientist who devoted his career to developing new drugs for 20 years before he discovered the power of diet for his own digestive health. Today, Dr. Norm will be discussing all things related to gut health, including SIBO, heartburn, acid reflux, irritable bowel syndrome, and ways that you can prevent these conditions. It's a great interview, and he shares quite a bit about what he has learned over the years. Before we get into the interview, if you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes if you would. That would be very helpful. Check me out on social media. The Low Carb Leader website is thelowcarbleader.com, and it has links to the Facebook and other social media sites. All right, on to the interview with Dr. Norm. On today's show, we have Dr. Norm Robillard. He's founder of the Digestive Health Institute, and he is a leading gut health expert and the author of the Fast Track Digestion book series. He is the creator of the drug and antibiotic-free fast track diet for functional gastrointestinal disorders, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, SIBO, and related conditions. Dr. Norm received his PhD at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, in microbiology, and he completed his postdoc work at Tufts University in Boston. Welcome to the show, Dr. Norm. Hello, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, very happy to have you on the show. This is going to be an interesting discussion about gut health. Uh, but before we start, you want to take us back through as far as you want to go and how you became where you grew up and how you became interested in this topic. Yeah, there is a bit of an evolution there. I mean, I was always interested in, in biology. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast, uh, you know, outside of the city. So I was always taking hikes in the woods, and, and I like biology, and I, I decided to study microbiology. And uh, so, but back in the day, we were more interested in, in pathogens and bacteria that make you sick. We weren't really focused on the bacteria that keep us healthy. Um, but it was interesting that as my career developed um, after school in, in the biotech and pharmaceutical industry, I was suffering with my own chronic uh, gut problem, uh, chronic acid reflux. And, uh, you know, I had heartburn and regurgitation and uh, sometimes even at night, you know, aspiration reflux where the, where the reflux went into my lungs and, you know, you'd wake up thinking you were dying. <laughs> it turns out, you know, you had, you had inhaled some of your own stomach contents. And it was just a terrible condition. It went on for many years. And I, uh, you know, the, the drugs, the proton pump inhibitors, H2 blockers, uh, even Tums really weren't taking care of the problem. But uh, it's interesting, that all changed in 2004, which um, you know, eventually led to a career change for me. And that's when my, uh, my oldest son, who was an athletic trainer at the time, suggested that we go on a low-carb diet together. 
and get a treadmill, lose some weight. And so I bought Protein Power, a you know, big book by Dr. Michaels, Michael and Mary Dan Eads, and started reading about low-carb and went on this diet. But before I lost a single pound, I noticed something very interesting. My chronic acid reflux completely went away. And I was just – I was stunned. I mean it was gone. And I wanted to know, you know, first of all, did, it, it, did other people uh, have the same experience? So I went online, did some searches, and it turned out that lots of other people were, say, people were saying the same thing. And there was even a small study, clinical study out of Duke where, you know, they found, yeah, they cut back the carbs and people's heartburn got better. But I got really curious about this, I guess, the biologist in me. I mean, did that mean that somehow carbs were causing my heartburn? So I decided to get to the bottom of this and doing a bit of research on how, you know, the food types were digested, the fats, proteins, and carbohydrates. And as I read and thought about the digestive process, when I got to the uh, small intestine, you know, you chew the food, you swallow it, it's mixed up in your stomach with acid and pepsin, but then it goes to the small intestine. And that's when a light bulb went off because I had studied intestinal bacteria over the years. Uh, we grew them for a variety of reasons, but I knew two things about uh, back these bacteria. Most of these strains preferred carbohydrates as a fuel source. It's what they, what is called uh, sacrolytic bacteria. And they uh, gobble up these carbohydrates and they produce a lot of gas. And I, as soon as I thought about that, a new theory came into my head about what might be the underlying cause of acid reflux. And that theory in a nutshell was that excess dietary carbohydrates, especially if you're not absorbing them, digesting and absorbing them well into your bloodstream, could persist and perhaps drive a kind of gut dysbiosis, an unbalanced gut microbiota, possibly, you know, the common term these days, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO. So according to this idea, my reflux and, and perhaps many other people, it was occurring because uh, of microbes producing excess gas, which creates pressure in your small intestine and stomach. And imagine like a little volcano or dropping a Mentos candy into a Coke, and, and the lava is overflowing, it's really your stomach contents being forced into the esophagus. So it's a completely new way of looking at this condition, and it provided me with a new lens to, to looking at an old problem. And so, you know, in my books, uh, you know, Fast Track Digestion, Heartburn, and there's another book, Fast Track Digestion, IBS, I really, you know, delve into the uh, evidence supporting this. So you know, if we have time, we can talk about that evidence a little bit today. Uh, but that is, that's really what got me uh, going in this new area. And now I'm just totally <laughs> involved with digestive health and the connection with uh, carbohydrates and, and changes with our gut microbiota. So it seems your son is responsible for you finding a new theory. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is really interesting because my son, he's 24 now and he introduced me to low carb and that this type of eating, which is, uh, it's just kind of funny that no, yeah, the, no the, the younger kids are just kind of more in tune to some of this stuff that we aren't. But, you know, I used to have heartburn all the time and it really, it completely disappeared when I went low carb. I, n ah, I never have it anymore. That's, that's pretty fascinating for those that are listening and they really, they've heard of SIBO, but they're not sure exactly what it is. Can you kind of tell us what it is? What are the symptoms? What causes it? You know, a lot of people wonder, why do we even have microbes in our gut anyway, right? And we do have lots of them, mostly in the large intestine, where they ferment 
or they consume fibers and other carbohydrates that our body doesn't absorb and some proteins as well. And they produce fats and those fats, right? You've heard of them, lactic acid, butyrate, propionate, so forth. Those fats nourish us. We can, we can process those fats for calories. So these bacteria are in our gut to uh, recoup these calories that would otherwise be lost. And that's why all animals have these gut microbiota. It's, there's a survival advantage when, when food is scarce. You can eat almost anything and your gut microbes will help you turn it into fats. So that's why they're there. But what happens with SIBO is a variety of reasons, which we may be able to touch on today. Uh, things get out of balance. Bacteria from the large intestine, you know, we're 100 100, over 100 trillion bacteria in our large intestine start to migrate and grow to high numbers in the small intestine. You know, and the definition is somewhere around greater than 10,000 bacterial cells per mil in the small intestine is, uh, would be considered SIBO. But that definition isn't very good because really there's a gradient in the early part of your small intestine where our own critical structures exist to help us digest and absorb food. You know, these microscopic projections called villi. And then on top of those villi or hairs, there's more micro hairs called microvilli. And then little enzymes on the tips of those microvilli that complete the breakdown of, of foods, especially carbs, so they can be absorbed into the bloodstream. So imagine if you have a lot of bacteria up there. Bacteria produce all kinds of you know, end products and toxins, but also proteolytic enzymes because they're still foraging for their own nutrients, including some uh, you know, amino acids from proteins because they need the nitrogen as well. So their proteases can actually damage these little enzymes on the tips of our microvilli. And so what happens is when they get damaged, you can't absorb the carbs in particular as well. And so more of them are available to feed bacteria. The more bacteria grow, they produce more damage. It's a cycle. And the cycle, you know, Elaine Gottschall, who wrote Breaking the Vicious Cycle in the 90s, um, coined that term, you know, this vicious cycle of damage, fueling bacteria growth, more damage over and over again. So that's, that's, that's what it is. And you mentioned symptoms. And, you know, there's a couple of groups of, of symptoms of SIBO. The typical symptoms are uh, things like abdominal pain, uh, cramps, uh, even diarrhea or constipation. And by the way, we've learned a lot about those two and why uh, different intestinal gases, uh, you know, often responsible for the, each of those symptoms respectively. But diarrhea, constipation, gas, bloating, acid reflux, which we just talked about, uh, even flatulence, nausea, uh, dehydration and fatigue. Those are the common symptoms, but SIBO can become more severe and can also include symptoms like weight loss uh, in children, a condition called failure to thrive where they don't grow uh, according to the, the, the typical growth tables, uh, steatorrhea where the body is uh, unable to process fats completely, uh, anemia, bleeding, bruising, list goes on and on, bone pain, and even fractures. Uh, because imagine with this condition, you're not absorbing minerals and vitamins as well. Uh, and even leaky gut, which is essentially, uh, you know, responsible f uh, for leading to autoimmune reactions. So you can see how there's a continuum and it can get, you know, worse and worse. Yeah, there's an amazing cascade of, of problems. So have you seen, you've been researching this for a long time, have you seen an increased presence of this as there's more processed food as we eat bigger portions, as we eat faster. Over your career, have you seen more and more of this or has it kind of stabilized? 
Mm, I mean, that's an interesting question. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's hard to find that data because, first of all, SIBO is involved in a huge uh, variety, not only of functional gastrointestinal conditions, uh, some of which we're talking about, but also it's present in uh, celiac and Crohn's, fibromyalgia. Um, uh, you see it in uh, asthma, which is connected to reflux and IBS, um, and many, many other conditions. So tracking the incidence and the change of incidence of these conditions, it's not something that's easy to do. Uh, but all I can say is that it is a huge problem. If you add up, uh, and I have a list somewhere of all of these conditions that involve SIBO, uh, it's well over 30 different uh, disorders or diseases. And when you add up the incidents, you're talking about well over 100 million people in just the U.S. alone. So what is it, a third of the population? I mean, it's, it's a big problem. I mean, just look at IBS and acid reflux alone. Acid reflux it affects about 60 million people. IBS, about 50 million people. Now, there's overlap between those two. Half of the people with IBS have reflux. Half of the people with reflux have IBS. So when you look at the overlap, that might help curtail the numbers a little bit, but conservatively, well over 100 million. So is that continuing to increase? Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, I would imagine this has gone up a lot since, the, um, uh, since antibiotics in the 40s. You know, as we've you know, more and more people have taken antibiotics for a whole variety of reasons, some important reasons and some not so important. That does, uh, that's one of the things that impacts uh, SIBO. In fact, it, we, could, we could run through the list of, of what are the causes of SIBO if you want. Yeah, that'd be great. Get at that too. Um, yeah, and antibiotics are on that list. This is an area, what does cause SIBO? And, and, you know, SIBO is, is a term for overgrowth of bacteria in the small intestine. But, you know, something people don't talk about much is, these days is dysbiosis, but just an imbalance or too much fermentation, even in the large bowel or the cecum. So you could really lump that in as well. But with SIBO, here, here are the main causes that have been identified to date. Um, one is motility problems, how well, you know, food moves through the digestive tract. Um, in fact, small bowel overgrowth that used to be called small, small bowel overgrowth was associated with blind loops. After somebody had surgery, if there was like a kink in the intestines, that could you know, cause this bacteria to back up. Well, surgeons know not to do that anymore. But still, motility problems in general are considered a main, a main cause. A new study a couple of years ago came out and showed that people with SIBO had low ileocecal valve pressure, which is interesting and makes sense, right? If this valve between the large bowel and the small intestine, it, if there's not enough, enough pressure to keep that closed, it would make it easier for bacteria from the large intestine to move back into the small intestine. Um, another one is low stomach acidity. You know, if somebody had a chronic H. pylori infection and developed atrophic gastritis, uh, they could have low stomach acid. But of course, the biggest <laughs> cause is people taking PPIs. That's what they do. They reduce stomach acidity. Um, immune deficiencies are another one. People that took uh, a lot of drugs or um, HIV patients, even people with celiac and Crohn's, you know, there's immune deficiencies um, and even, you know, genetic alterations there. Uh, but antibiotics are a big one. They, they really do mess with your gut microbiota, as well as you could add preservatives to that list and maybe even anti-nutrients in some of the foods. Um, uh, GI infections, that's a big one. Uh, Pementel's group out at Cedar sinai has been looking at that, and they developed that new IBS uh, check test for the uh, you know, bacteria that make a certain toxin associated with a gastrointestinal infection. But the biggest one, and the one, the one that I focus on, the one that I think is most important and is getting the least amount of attention is carbohydrate malabsorption. 
It's really fascinating because it's key for dietary control. The bacteria depend on these carbs to grow. In fact, if you look back and just look at the Merck uh, manual and you just look at, uh, you know, they, they've d documented carbohydrate malabsorption extremely well. And the, and the symptoms are the same as SIBO, which is fascinating to me. So anyway, there's some of the causes, some of the things I look at and, and study. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just thinking as you're talking through this, this just negative cycle. So you have carbs in your diet. So you eat your chili cheese with onions and then you wonder why you have acid reflux. And then you have that and you take a proton pump inhibitor and that makes it worse. Is this, exactly. a correct, is this a correct statement? If you go back to a good diet, you can prevent a lot of the negative side effects. And then the second part of the question is, what percent of these type of problems do, would you attribute to a bad diet? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So if you look through those causes that we listed, um, you know, there are some things that don't have to do with diet. You know, if for some other reason, you had to take lots of antibiotics. You know, that has nothing to do with your diet per se, but it can create this this, this imbalance or this problem. Same with gastrointestinal infections. Uh, yeah, it could be from food poisoning, uh, water poisoning, you know, contaminated water, but it's not necessarily uh, your diet. Same with immune deficiencies, uh, low stomach acid. You know, somebody has H. pylori, that's not really from their diet. So a lot of these things that can lead to it are not based on diet, but I really think the malabsorption of carbohydrates is just uh, not recognized at the level that it should be is one of the major drivers of this. I mean, you know, years ago, if you go back, you know, to look at our Paleolithic ancestors and how people survived, uh, if you ever take a walk in the woods and then you start thinking about where could I find food out here, it's hard, yeah. right? It's not easy to find food in the wild. Uh, you have to dig something up, uh, kill something. I mean, it's it's very hard to find, you know, proper nutrition. So back in the day, I would imagine we did not eat as much. There was more natural. We call it intermittent fasting. We have to insert it into our uh, lifestyle. But back then, fasting was was the norm because you didn't often find a meal uh, when you needed one. So we we eat so much more now, and foods, including all of the you know the carbohydrates that that I hope we get a chance to talk about, the ones that are most likely to be driving the this SIBO, um, they're just available everywhere. People can get snack foods constantly, and we eat too much. You know, the the overnutrition is is um, you know as big a problem as undernutrition. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the show Naked and Afraid, and so oh <laughs> yeah, perfect. They, they all almost starved to death over, over 21 days. So your your comment about finding food in the in the forest or the jungle or whatever, I think. Yeah, fasting was. You know, another another good one to watch. It's a Canadian show. I think it's called Fat Guys in the Woods, okay, where yeah. a survivalist takes some city guys out to the woods for a week, and they have to live off the land. Oh, and that's it's great. Just fascinating. <laughs> fascinating. Uh, uh, we'll come back to the malabsorption of carbohydrates, but uh, just one comment on antibiotics. Uh, it being in the hospital world myself, doctors are really aware now of not over prescribing antibiotics because it's been such a big issue. You know, if it's a viral infection, they won't do it. Or, you know, there has to be really specific reasons. And now the patients and their families get upset because they want, over the last 30 years, they want that antibiotic and they feel like the physician is not doing their job when in fact, what they're doing is right. really positive for the family. So I just find that as a it, kind of it, an yeah, odd twist. I can yeah. see. Yeah, I can see that it would be a real challenge because people want the insurance policy. Well, just in case, you know, give me the antibiotic. 
And now and the trend is in some ways is going in the opposite direction. Uh, the FDA recently approved the antibiotic rifaximin for the treatment of IBSD, diarrhea predominant IBS. Remember what we talked about the symptoms of, of SIBO, and IBS is essentially synonymous with SIBO, but those more severe symptoms, you know, somebody's actually lose, not able to maintain proper weight, um, or they have some of these more serious uh, reactions. I can see in those cases using an antibiotic, but for the less severe common symptoms, all of these people with the, the SIBO, I think antibiotics shouldn't be the first thing they recommend. They should really be the last thing, and you should try diet first. And it, it, one of the problems is diet. Uh, you know, diets used to be more of an anecdotal thing. Don't eat spicy foods, avoid this. Or, well, that approach didn't work. But now there's more and more science going into these diets, and that's why we're trying to push the fast track uh, diet through uh, the clinic faster so that we can we can have it on the hospital formulary, doctors can more easily say, well, you know what, before the antibiotics, which might end up messing with you more, you know, try, try this diet and see how you do, because it might be all you need. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so back to the malabsorption of carbohydrates, talk about the ones that will give us a foundation of it. And then the ones that really do the damage in your opinion. Well, I think that, you know, and you have a background and your blog is awesome, by the way, on, on ketogenic diets. Oh, and, you. and uh, you know, I've been lower carb for some 14 years now. Um, whether I'm actually in ketosis or not, I, I don't know. I've never even checked, but I do eat more of a low carb diet. So I think that's a good, you know, place to start right there. Just go on a low carb diet, see how that works. Here's what happened. We, when I I first wrote a book called Heartburn Cured about this theory, the theory that I talked to you about. And I wanted to get this idea out there. So I wrote it while I was uh, you know, still working at a big pharma company. And so I wrote it at night and there's a lot of typos in it. And I self-published. I just wanted to get it out there. And then I went to some meetings. I went to a low carb, on one of those low carb cruises and I wanted to tell people about it. But what I found there was people on low carb diets, they were already doing much better for their digestive health. So I realized I was looking in the wrong place to find my my peeps. So I started looking in other places and I realized there were a lot of people that weren't on low-carb diets and many of them probably didn't need to be on a low-carb diet. If they didn't have blood sugar issues or metabolic disorders, they, uh, they were athletes. Some people can tolerate more carbs, right? So I wanted to come up with a diet that would help people that weren't necessarily on a very low carbohydrate diet control their gut issues. And so I, I started focusing on only the carbohydrates that are difficult to digest and, and subject to this malabsorption. And here's the list that I came up with. Fructose, lactose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols. And, and by the way, erythritol is actually the one friendly sugar alcohol that, that doesn't cause us problem, but most sugar alcohols. So those five is what I focused on. Um, and because they're subject to some level of malabsorption and capable of being fermented by these gas producing bacteria. And, you know, the foundation for that, uh, some of those are no brainers, right? I mean, we've known about lactose intolerance since the early 1900s. And what, what will a doctor tell you to do if you're lactose intolerant? Right. Avoid lactose. Right. Yep. Does it work? Yes. <laughs> it's the same with fructose intolerance, even though that was really the subject of more intense research in the in the 80s. 
Uh, but we know now a lot of people, over half of the people on the planet are intolerant to some level of fructose. And what's the solution? Avoid fructose. Same with sugar alcohols. If you go on the FDA website, there's lots of information there about the problem with uh, you know, a lot of these sugar alcohols, sorbitol, mannitol. You know, you, you, if you have too much, you'll get diarrhea, you'll get bloating, you'll get all these symptoms. So those three are kind of you know, standard. But when it comes to other types of fermentable carbs, like the numerous types of dietary fibers and resistant starch, for some reason, there's this perception out there that, oh, no, those are healthy. Those are so the solution, not the problem. And I really question those because here's the reason. One of the arguments is fiber is tough to digest. So by the time you digest it, it's already in your large intestine. And so it's not going to feed SIBO which, okay, you could make an argument about that, but, but when you ask what is SIBO, they've actually sampled and identified some of the bacteria in SIBO, and it's the bacteria that are indigenous, normally indigenous to the large bowel. So here are those bacteria that are capable of fermenting fiber up in the small intestine. So my approach um, is to limit all five in the beginning to get this excess fermentation under control. By the way, after I wrote these fast-track digestion books, you know, with a system to limit these five types of carbs. I just happened to be uh, flipping through the textbook of primary and acute care medicine, which is actually a book used to treat, to teach doctors. And, uh, and I was looking at the chapter on intestinal gas complaints, and I still remember it made such an impact. It's page 1192. And there's a quote, uh, dietary alterations to reduce intestinal gas require the elimination of most of the foods in table one. So I flipped over to table one, and what did it list? Fructose, lactose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols. Exactly <laughs> the same. So it's out there, but I think that finding a way to quantitate this in our diet and finding a way to, to produce a diet that is palatable has been the challenge. And so that's what I've spent many years uh, working on. Yeah, and most of the low-carb products now, like the Atkins bars and all that, they use sugar alcohol to get that net carb number really low. The, a lot of them do, yeah. And I think there's, there's better choices to do that. So that's, you know, th these are the reasons I, I created a new diet because all of the other diets, while they were a step in the right direction, there were some limitations and some issues. And I wanted this diet to just focus specifically on things that drive these, basically all these functional gastrointestinal disorders, including reflux and IBS. So you mentioned fermentation potential, and there's a list of high and low FP foods. Kind of yes. talk us through that. Sure. Yeah. Well, you know, the, 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 the diet approach itself, first of all, it, it depends on three pillars. There's three parts to the, to the program. And so one is, is literally controlling the excess uh, dietary fermentable carbs in the diet. And, the, and that's where the FP calculation comes into, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that in a second. But there's two other pieces that I just wanted to mention. And uh, one is improving pro-digestion behaviors and practices that really doesn't get enough attention. You've heard the saying, chew well, right? Chew your food well. Right. Well, it turns out that is really, really important because we now know that people, depending on where they come from, where their ancestors come from, have different gene copies for the enzyme amylase in the saliva. So some people can have nine, 10 gene copies and up to 60% of their saliva is the amylase enzyme. They have no trouble with starch. 
other people have many fewer copies and they're challenged. So if you eat slowly and chew well, whatever your gene copy is for amylase, you're going to give it longer, a longer um, time to break down the starch. So, and, and also how you prepare foods, consume them, store them, you know, refrigerating starches builds up resistant starch, for instance. So there's all these behaviors. And then the third thing is identifying and addressing potential underlying causes. And we talked about those causes. So in the book, there's a chapter on that going through. What are these? And, and if you do have one of these, how can, you, how can you identify it and how can you address it? So there's that. How does this fermentation potential work? This was actually the, the hardest part of, of writing this book, Daniel. I had identified these five carbs, these five carb types, but I thought, how on earth can I make a diet out of this? Because what would I have to do? Analyze every single food and make sure we know how many of each of these five types of carbs are in that food because I wanted to make it quantitative. And I, I, it took me two years to figure this out. And finally, I came up with this idea and it was to use the glycemic index because the glycemic index is a measurement of how quickly the carbohydrates from any food go into the bloodstream, right? And they test this in each food they want to test. They do the test in 10 different people, and then they get a mean. And so there's something, uh, you know, they try to get some statistics around it to make it more accurate. But I realized that I could take this glycemic index equation and I could turn it around so that instead of measuring how quickly carbs are going into the bloodstream compared to glucose, the gold standard, I could measure how much, how long carbohydrates were persisting in the small intestine. So I just flipped the equation around. And so it, it's interesting that this equation now, and, and the definition is now called FP for fermentation potential. So it doesn't mean each and every one of these carbohydrates will absolutely be fermented by bacteria, but they have the potential to be because they're persisting. And so it, what it really turns into is a flexible point system. It's like, like Weight Watchers, but for gut health. And so each food this calculation gives it a specific point value, and it's based on the glycemic index, the serving size, and the nutritional facts. So whenever you have that data, you can calculate the FP. So uh, in, the, uh, in the book, there's about 350 different foods and all these different tables. Uh, we just came out with a new Fast Track Diet mobile app with a list of foods is now 800 foods with these, with these uh, FP values. So um, – you know, and the app also helps you track your meals and your points and your symptoms. So you can see more clearly which of these foods and serving sizes are driving your potential, uh, your, your uh, symptoms. Uh, in fact, you can, you can cut your FP value in half, by the way, by having the serving size as well. So no food is really verboten or illegal, but it is um, you do have to watch these points and keep them to about oh, maybe 25 points which represents grams of these fermentable carbs, 25 points or 25 grams per day, at least initially to get things under control. Right. So you give them variety, but they have an upper limit of points. Exactly. Right. If you really like something, you know, like say you like pasta. Um, okay. Most of the wheat-based pastas, forget about it. I mean, they're so high. You can cut the serving sizes. That will definitely help, but they are really high. So what you could do instead is get a rice pasta and, again, not have a huge serving size. 
Uh, in fact, in the book, we, we use serving sizes and we use common measures like cups and tablespoons, but also there's a column where you can look at the grams if you wanted to weigh it. Um, but what I did is intentionally reduce some of these serving sizes, especially of higher carb and higher starchy or fibrous foods. Um, so you'll never see a serving size of a whole potato. It'll be a half a potato. You won't see a cup of rice. You'll see a half a cup of rice. Yeah, I would think you would get to the point where you would say it's not even worth it to eat, you know, a half a cup of rice. I mean, that's not a lot of rice. Yeah, it, you know, it's not a lot of rice, but really you do get used to it. And, and uh, you know, uh, I tend to eat a very low carbohydrate diet, but occasionally if I'm get, having sushi or I'm out to dinner, I will have a little rice, but I will have a small serving. And then I'll follow all those behaviors that I, I talked to you about um, to make sure it doesn't come back and, and bite me. In this plan, do you completely avoid the five and then you have these 800 foods that you can select from? Or is, like, for example, is there fructose in the diet at really small portions, or is that completely out? Nothing is out, but the more of those five types of carbs that are in a given food, it will raise the FP value. And so you'll you'll automatically see, okay, this one could be a little troublesome, and, and I may need to avoid it. A little rule of thumb is just eat the foods near the tops of all these tables. You know, there's tables for for dairy and vegetables and fruit and snacks and supplements and all of these different tables. And if you just pick the stuff near the top of it, you're good to go. And the vegetables, by the way, there's some 150 vegetables in the table. About 50 of those are really low FP. Same with fresh herbs. So there is a huge variety in the low FP spectrum. You know, green leafy vegetables don't have a whole bunch of carbs to begin with. So they, are, they do tend to be safer foods. It's really when you get into the starchier foods and the, the rice and the potatoes and the corn and the yams, that's when you have to really be careful and start looking closely at these FP values, which if we get a chance to talk about some of these foods, you'll see it, it's amazing the difference between foods that you would think would be exactly the same. Maybe take us through a couple of those. Yeah, sure. Like let's, we talked about rice, right? You know, I, I once uh, uh, went over to my uh, friend's house. He's also a microbiologist, uh, but his wife is uh, Indian. And she put on a big spread of food, and the centerpiece was a big bowl of basmati rice. And I knew that was potentially going to kill me, but it was such a nice spread of food, and, <laughs> and I ended up eating it. But I knew that night. And sure enough, I woke up in the middle of the morning with terrible reflux, but I had a smile on my face because it confirmed my theory. Right? So if you look at the FP calculation of basmati rice, right? and basmati rice has a lot of resistant starch in it. There's two types of starch. A little primer here. One's amylopectin. It's very easy to digest and absorb. And the other one is amylose, more of a linear type of starch molecule. It's hard to digest and absorb. So basmati has a lot of the resistant starch. And for even a half cup, there is uh, the FP value is 10. So that's 10 grams of these hard to digest fermentable carbs. And, and let's put that into perspective, right? One ounce or 28 grams of undigested carbs can allow bacteria to produce, are you ready for this? 10 liters of gas, one ounce. Wow. That's a lot of gas. That is a lot Imagine of gas. 10 balloons of gas in your intestines. Now, basmati rice has 10, 10 points or 10 grams. So it's about a third. So a little over three liters of gas. But now let's imagine instead of making basmati rice, you made jasmine rice. And jasmine rice is comprised of mostly uh, amylopectin starch with very little amylose. And not surprisingly, the FP value is very low, near zero. 
Yeah, the question I have is in in some of the paleo communities, they actually advocate fermenting rice, so ferment fermentable rice. So make your white rice and then put it in the refrigerator to actually Yes. I mean I'm saying or sorry, the resistant starches in it. Yes. Um yes. so that's actually contrary to what you're you're saying yes. here, right? Yes. You're you're absolutely correct. And I mean, you know, uh, first of all, I love the paleo diet. I love looking through that lens in, in evaluating, you know, our food and nutrition. Um, it, it's it's simply amazing. And for some people that don't have these problems, I think they can eat more resistant starch, and they can, you know, take a tablespoon of that Bob's Red Mill resistant starch, mix it in water, or make a shake out of it, and purposely feed their microbiota extra resistant starch. That's fine if they can tolerate it, but a lot of people can't. And even on some of these groups and Facebook pages, I've seen people, you know, they want to get the benefit they've heard. If you consume resistant starch, you have vivid dreams and there's all these benefits and they want it so bad, even though it's aggravating their autoimmune condition, they're trying to push through it because they want the benefit. And so my feeling is for people with these conditions, bloating, reflux, all of these symptoms and all of these conditions we're talking about, I think that less is more. I really do. So what's your take on pre and probiotics and supplements? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a huge question. I mean, first of all, pr let's take probiotics first. Um, there is some data out there, you know, newer data suggesting that certain probiotics may be helpful for some, you know, conditions. Saccharomyces cerevisiae, is that how you pronounce it? It has shown some benefit for people with diarrhea, bifidobacteria lactis, uh, in a meta-analysis out of King's College a few years ago, showed that that probiotic might help constipation. But of course, you have to look at how much it helps. It, in, it increased, it improved constipation by one bowel movement a week. So you have to put it in perspective. Uh, I think the probiotics today are not tremendously helpful, but there's two things I'd say about that. First of all, when I do recommend a probiotic for somebody, I first put it to the microbiological sniff test. And that is this. When you think about bacteria in terms of, of the metabolism, there are strains that are called homolactic fermenters. When they ferment a sugar, the only end product is lactic acid, which is gut healthy and no gas. There's other heterolactic fermenters that have a mixed fermentation. So when they ferment a sugar, they make all these different end products, which can include carbon dioxide and hydrogen gas. So first of all, I would choose strains that are homolactic fermenters. Uh, the second point I wanted to make about probiotics is that the best is yet to come. I mean, this incredible, I mean, incredible research going on right now about what, which of these strains are important, right? There's some thousand different strains possible in, in the gut microbiota. And then substrains expands the list, you know, almost infinitely. But of course, in any one person, there may be two or three or 400 strains. So collectively, there's 1,000 individuals, two or 300, but there's still a lot of different strains. And we've got this handful of maybe 30, 30 or 50 different you know, uh, probiotic strains, most of them uh, in the lactobacillus family and the small intestine, and a lot of bifidobacteria too, and a few others. But the point is, I don't think we have our hands yet on, yet on the most important ones. Uh, Akamensa mucinophila feeds off mucus on the gut lining. Um, you know, it's deficient and connected to obesity uh, and maybe um, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, Fecalibacterium prausnitzi, that's an important bacteria. And, and apparently, you know, it's very anti-inflammatory and it's deficient in people that have Crohn's. So that we're making all of these connections. 
and then maybe ways to use some of these, uh, you know, keystone species species as a probiotic. But right now they can't grow them and, and keep them, you know, and, and package them properly. So it's an area of research and development that I think will yield tremendous value. And if you want evidence of that, just look at the success of fecal micro fecal microbiota transplantation. You know, can cure C. diff. 95%, no side effects to speak of most of the time. Um, it's amazing. So probiotics have a, a great future, but we're not there yet. Prebiotics, uh, it really gets back to my other argument. If you don't have bloating and gas and all these problems, go ahead and try a prebiotic. If you do, I would recommend against it. Like, for instance, fructose oligosaccharide is one of those that is used for as a prebiotic. But there was a study, oh gosh, a while ago, maybe even in the 90s, where they gave this this fructose oligosaccharide to people that had acid reflux. Well, it made it worse. More episodes of reflux, more symptoms. So it backfired, and it's consistent with my theory that it's an overgrowth of bacteria producing gas fueled by these prebiotic molecules. What about any other supplements that, and I know it's not, it's specific to each person, but are there general supplements that are positive for this type of condition? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things, I forget if we listed it under causes, but if I didn't, I should go back to my notes and, and add it. Um, you know, pancreatic deficiency is, is a big problem and it's underdiagnosed. And so for one reason or another, whether it's pancreatitis and inflammation of the pancreas, uh, kids with cystic fibrosis have that problem because of the ducts to the pancreas get plugged up with the same mucus that's in their lungs. Um, but in the general population, pancreatic enzyme deficiencies, lipase, amylase, and protease uh, being deficient is apparently a much bigger problem than has been realized. So if you don't have that, particularly amylase, enough amylase, and, and it's different from your salivary amylase in your saliva, there's another species of amylase that your pancreas releases once the food gets to your small intestine. If you're deficient in any of those enzymes, you know, I think taking a good quality enzyme digestive enzyme supplement is important. But I would avoid, you know, some of the new supplements are heavily marketed and everybody wants to be better than the other guy. And so they end up putting more and more different types of enzymes. And then you read these labels, you're like, what the heck are they putting in here? And some of them have a lot of fiber digesting enzymes. And when I see somebody taking one of those, I'm like, you know, that could be making your problem worse. But here's why. Those fiber digesting enzymes are digesting fibers that shouldn't be digested until they get to your large intestine. Why would you want to speed that process up and make, make those uh, glucose molecules that make up the fiber more accessible earlier on in the digestive tract? So I would get rid of that and go with a simpler. A lot of times I'll recommend somebody just take a pure enzymes, uh, amylase enzyme supplement without any of the other stuff. If you're not having a problem malabsorbing fat, why would you take lipase? Um, if you're not having a problem with uh, proteins, why would you take protease? So I try to be very specific and only recommend something if there's clear evidence that that's what the problem is. And then afterwards, they should ask the question, is it helping or not? Because I, I talk to people that have taken 40 or 50 supplements. They have no idea if any of them are helping, and some of them may be making it worse. Yeah, I was going to ask, how effective is it if you're just self-diagnosing yourself? Because as you're going through the sophistication of the pre and the pro and the supplements and the enzymes, it seems it would be, you would just be guessing if you weren't getting some type of expert advice. Yeah. I mean, I think it's the, uh, you know, it's the spaghetti approach. <laughs> yeah. You're throwing spaghetti against the refrigerator and seeing what sticks. What would be the one or two gut-friendly practices that you would recommend? We talked about a lot of stuff, but just for the general population, what's the one or two things that everybody sh might want to try? 
Sure. In fact, some of these, yeah, we did touch on, but let's just kind of sum it all up here. I think number one, whenever possible, avoid antibiotics. I mean, there are times when you have to take them and they'll save your life and you need to take them. Or for instance, if you have a, a prolonged H. pylori infection in your stomach, that can lead to atrophic gastritis, ulcers, cancer. Yes, take the antibiotics and treat it. But for most other things, you should really avoid it. In fact, last year, I had a cuticle infection on the top of my finger, and it was terrible. It was big and red and inflamed, and it was just disgusting. And even if you brushed against something, it hurt. And man, it was so tempting to take antibiotics. But instead, I sterilized a scalpel and actually lanced it myself in the bathroom and just kept soaking in an Epsom salts. And at the end of the day, I would manage to get through it with my own immune system and not taking the antibiotics. So I'm not, not everybody is, <laughs> yeah. you know, is maybe it? a little dizzy to do it to myself. But um, but I'm just saying, try to avoid the antibiotics when you can, unless you really need them. But of course, don't do anything crazy. There's times when you need them. So antibiotics, uh, select a whole foods diet. Don't eat a lot of crap. And keep the serving sizes low in terms of FP points, uh, as I mentioned, under 25 totally for the day if you can. You can still eat a lot of veggies, fish, meats, uh, low lactose dairy, cream, light, and, light or heavy cream only has a couple of points compared to a glass of milk that has eight points or chocolate milk that has 18 points. So a little, uh, a little, you know, low lactose dairy and fermented dairy, right? Yogurt, aged cheeses, all that stuff. You can have some uh, fruits, certain fruits. Uh, melons really low. You know, you would you wouldn't want to have uh, like bananas high. Even a half a banana is ten points. There's three liters of gas. A cantaloupe is only three. So some fruits and and a lot of healthy fats. So that's you know some overlap with your keto diet. We do recommend a high fat diet. Um, and then eat slowly, chew well. We talked about why did why we need to do that. Uh, select ripe fruits and veggies. Uh, a lot of the starch has been converted to simpler sugars. Um, some people peel the vegetables as well. Select low FP starches. Starches are a real problem, and you have to go with the, you know the ones that are lower. Like a red potato, half of a red potato is only two grams of FP points, whereas half a uh, half a potato worth of French fries is ten. So what you're choosing, choose the low, especially with respect to the starches. And then we talked about digestive enzymes. You could probably add um, uh, betaine, HCL, or apple cider vinegar to that for a subset of people. And then uh, I think from looking at your website, one of your favorite topics, intermittent fasting. Right. Everybody, right. Should, yeah. everybody should be doing it. Everybody. It's, so, you know, it's a paleo technique, really. When you don't have your meals as often, it's a good thing. I almost never eat breakfast, maybe a handful of nuts. Yeah, that's that's me as well. What about cheat meals to keep your mind intact? You know, they say once in a while you have to cheat just so you, you can stay on your diet. Does that long term negatively affect your your gut if you're having say say you're having some cheat meal big bowl of pasta or something every couple of weeks do you do you ever recover from that yeah that's a good question i i do think that and, and i'm evidence for this myself i've been doing this for 13 years um over time as your gut heals and don't forget these villi and microvilli they replace themselves regularly but you've got to stop the damage and when you do stop it they will replace it themselves. Even people with celiac disease, right, with these villi get just wiped out from that autoimmune reaction to gluten. I mean, it's terrible. It's a terrible situation. But if they go on a strict gluten-free diet, of course, it should be a fast-track version of that where they don't have too much resistant starch either, but that's a side note. When they have a strict gluten-free diet, these villi heal, but it can take to it can take months or even a year because of how severe that damage is. But for something like IBS or SIBO, 
I think that you're, these should heal relatively quickly if you can just stop the damage, and then you will be more tolerant. So you can cheat on one meal, one day, maybe a couple of three days. You can go away on a holiday and cheat here and there and be okay. But if you do much more or much beyond that, my own experience has been that the symptoms will start to creep back. Uh, great tip. All right. We are out of time, but I want you to tell us where we can find you uh, because you have a great book. Do you do coaching? What services do you offer? Yeah, uh, we do do some coaching, and you can reach us at uh, digestivehealthinstitute.org. Um, there's a free ebook on the fast track diet, and it's uh, pretty extensive. It really uh, talks all about the principles of the diet and, and how to get going and do it. Um, there's a lot of blog articles on the site. In fact, I wrote recently wrote a four-part article on everything you'd ever want to know about acid reflux based on this new lens, this new understanding. There, there are books. There is a consultation program. And you can also find our new Fast Track Diet mobile app, uh, which has actually become quite popular because it's got voice recognition. You can be sitting in the store and say carrots or cabbage, and you can see what which ones have the lowest points. Um, and you can find that at FastTrackTRACTDiet.com. Uh, and also, I encourage people to join our Fast Track Diet official Facebook group where we have a simple mission, but it's a big mission, and that's to help 10 million people get off drugs and antibiotics with holistic uh, diet solutions. Yeah, that is so awesome. And we will link everything to these sites. So uh, everybody listening, you can come to the Low Carb Leader website and all the links will be under this podcast. So, well, Dr. Sure. Norm, it has been awesome today uh, talking with you. And where are you calling from? I'm in Watertown, Mass. So I'm about seven miles out of uh, downtown Boston. Yeah. Okay. Well, I grew up in the Midwest. So you know, the Midwesterners really don't have an accent, according to us. Uh, so I do detect a slight Boston accent. Is that a, is that the correct location? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I actually grew up right between Boston and Providence. So I don't know what it is, but it's different. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and you were you were out on the West Coast. You didn't lose it um, over a decade. I didn't. Yeah. Uh, Ten years out there. Yeah. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been really fascinating. I, I think this is a great area of research. And I appreciate all you're doing for the health of everybody who's suffering from this type of stuff. Well, thanks, Daniel. I really enjoyed being on your show. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. And we hope that you are on the road to your successful low carb lifestyle. Become a leader in your health and a leader in life. Check us out at www.thelowcarbleader.com. And remember to join Dan again next time on the Low Carb Leader Podcast.